Welcome to Study, Grow, Know, where we discuss theology, prophecy, and current political issues from a conservative biblical perspective. Here's your host, Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Our Father, to have walked with Jesus during his ministry, to have listened to him, to have seen him, to have watched him minister to people, people like us, to have seen his miracles, to have felt his love, and to have seen and heard his remonstration against those who were so buried in tradition that they didn't even know the way of salvation and unfortunately kept others from it, to have seen you would have been such a blessing. But we're here, and you're not here physically. And I just pray, Father, that you will get me out of the way and that you will speak to all of us, including myself, for what you have laid on my heart to discuss this evening. And I pray that I will learn it all over again and take us into it deeply. Father, we want to glorify you. We don't want to live for ourselves. We know that we're here after we have received salvation for a specific purpose. And certainly, the biggest part of that purpose is the Great Commission. We are thankful to be privileged to be part of it. And we want to do what we can in your strength to be part of that. We want you to be glorified in our lives. We thank you for your word. As we open it this evening, please allow it to be what it is, alive, living, able to cut to the marrow. Help us to be impacted by your word. And we thank you for this, and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to get there in just a minute. Um, our text this evening is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Let me go ahead and just read that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose in him, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things 
after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We've all, um, we've all heard about misers. We know what a miser is. A miser is a person who lives as if they have nothing. You look at them, they're no different from the average homeless person. And then when they die, all of a sudden we read in the newspaper that somebody left a fortune, but they live like a pauper. And we sit there and we scratch our heads. And we go, what was their problem? Why? That's the big question. Why didn't they use what they had? Something in them refused to see the value of what they had. They just completely ignored it. Completely. Misers live a life they do not need to live. Um, Many of them often have, as I mentioned, tremendous wealth. They live as if they don't even have a penny to their name. You may have heard of this woman. Her name was Hetty Green, and she's probably one of the most famous misers that ever lived. She, um, she ate her oatmeal cold because she didn't want to pay to heat it. Her son finally had to have a leg amputated because she could not find a free clinic. She left behind a fortune of over $200 million dollars. But to look at her, you'd never guess. And you sit there and you go, what is her problem? But there's actually a situation which is really worse, in my view. Worse than having money, knowing you have money, and not using it. The situation that's worse is, imagine this. You have a 20-acre parcel of land that's been in your family for generations. Just sat there. There's nothing on it. Trees, brush, nothing. And finally, times are tough. And you look at it and you go, well, I guess we're going to have to sell the land. I just hope we can get a fair price for it. So you put it up for sale. Eventually somebody buys it. And you're so grateful because now you have money to help you through the rough times. Month later, you find out that the people who bought the land had a geologist come in. And wouldn't you know it? they discovered an extremely rich vein of gold or silver or whatever. And now you're sitting there saying, the land I had was worth 10,000 times more than I got for it. And I didn't even know it. And you kick yourself over and over and over again. Um, You know, the reality though is, as Christians, and as I was studying this, I thought to myself, and I had to admit Am I living with a deep awareness, a deep understanding, a deep knowledge of the spiritual blessings I have in Christ? Am I living that way? Am I living that way? Or am I just living as a Christian, doing the best I can, going through life, and that's all I can hope for? Is that what I'm doing? 
And I had to really be honest with myself, because if you aren't, God will get you to know it anyway eventually. But the reality is, no. No, I wasn't. Now, the thing that we all do, and we do it well. I almost think sometimes we do it too well. We can castigate ourselves for the sin in our life. And sin should never, ever be taken lightly. Never. We should never smirk at it. We should never smile at it or wink at it. We should never go, ah, it's just a sin. The reality is that every sin put Jesus Christ on the cross. Every sin. So we should never, never take it lightly. Never. But I also wonder, why am I not putting that much effort and prayer in determining what these spiritual blessings are that Paul talks about? Why am I not spending that much time wondering what are these spiritual blessings and what are they good for? What do they do for me? Or better yet, what, does, what do they allow Christ to do in and through me? Are those blessings for me or are they for Christ to work in me so that he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish? Well, I think God wants us to be spiritually rich because we are, and I think he wants us to know it. Now, when I say spiritually rich, again, I want to emphasize, please do not misunderstand me. I do not believe that Christ has made us spiritually rich so that we can go around saying, I am rich in Christ. Not the reason at all. As I say, those spiritual blessings are for his body, for the deliverance of those who are still yet lost, and for the building up of his body. But ultimately, for what? His glory. You know, when we stand before him, when we stand before him in eternity, at the beam of seat, not to be judged for our salvation, but to be judged for everything we've ever said, every work we've ever done, every thought we've ever th- thought. Well, some of us are going to get rewards. And I've mentioned this in my Bible class a couple of times, at least. Who are the rewards for? So I can walk around heaven with a crown or two on my head? I don't think so. We get a picture in Revelation of what? Those people throwing their crowns at Christ. Why? Because it was him who literally earned the crowns through us. We didn't do a thing except what? Submit. So as we look at this, I want to find out something. How richly blessed are we spiritually in Christ? Now, the Apostle Paul paints a wonderful picture here. But if we don't take the time to look at it seriously, if we don't take the time to meditate on it, if we don't take the time to pray that the Lord, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, will open our eyes to the riches that we have in him, we will be like the person who has a 20-acre parcel of land, sells it, thinks they got a wonderful price for it, only to find out they didn't get anywhere near what it was valued at. So let's look at this. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, there's actually eight, eight blessings that that Paul lists here. We're just going to talk about seven of them, but there are actually eight. I was reading a couple of systematic theologies this week, um, 
And it's really interesting because in more than one, there are 33, 33 divine blessings that you and I have in Christ. 33, 33. Now, ask yourself this, how many of them can I name? And when I asked myself that, I thought, okay, there's, I couldn't name anywhere close to 33. 33, what are they there for? Decorating the walls? No, they're there for us so that God can work through us, blessing us as he does so. Now, there are three things that we want to look at tonight. We get, we get our riches, our blessings from the Father. We get riches or blessings from Jesus Christ. And we get riches or blessings from the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 4, I love the way Paul writes. He writes like a lawyer. And because of that, sometimes you really have to stop and look at it again and then again and even again to really figure out what he's saying because he wraps so much in there that you can't just read it once and think, I got it. Uh-uh. There's a lot. Look at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When I stop to think about that, I think, wow, before the foundation of the world, he knew me. He saw me. He knew me. He chose me. And that's one thing about Paul. Paul never, ever thought of himself as having chosen to do God's work. Never. Never. He thought he was doing it before he became a Christian, but he found out he was not even close. As a matter of fact, he was kicking against the goads. He was working against Jesus Christ by persecuting him through his children, the church. So Paul never thought of himself as having chosen to do God's work. As a matter of fact, Paul never thought of himself as someone who chose God. And his conversion proves it. He's going along to Damascus, minding his own business, and what happens? A light. This is midday. Midday. The sun's out, and a light brighter than the sun stops him in his tracks. He falls over. He's blinded. He hears a voice. We know the story. Did Paul choose that? No. He was bent on chasing down every last Jewish person who had become a Christian to haul them back to Jerusalem or stone them on the spot as they did with Stephen. Didn't make any difference. He was going to get rid of Christianity once and for all. It was not going to dominate or take over Judaism. So what does he do? He meets Christ on the way, and his life changed. He realized then, uh uh-oh, what I thought I was doing for God, I wasn't even close. He always thought of God as having chosen him. And when I think about that, it reminds me of something. I can't convince anybody to be a Christian. I can't. Neither can you. Nobody can. But that doesn't mean we're not supposed to talk to them, right? It doesn't mean that we're supposed to say, I can't convince you anyway. And then, uh, okay, I'm going to let God do it. And we've, you know, we've all heard about people who say, well, you know what, since everybody's going to be saved, that's going to be saved. I don't have to do anything. Yes, we do. The Great Commission is our command. Whether anyone has ever saved through us, as far as our ministry to them, that we ever know about is completely beside the point. 
We have to be involved in the Great Commission because Christ ordered us to be. He told us to be. We don't have an option to sit on the side and say, you know what? People are going to get there anyway. They may. They will, in spite of us. But God expects his will to be obeyed. And he has every right to expect that, especially with people like us who are called children of God. So here he is. He's moving along. And he realizes, I didn't choose God. And in John 15, 16, here's what we read. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. I love how many times, and we've heard this, People only quote the last part of that. You know, whatever you ask in the Father's name, he's going to give you. Well, there's a couple of conditions here. First of all, he chose, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, he chose you. And secondly, he chose you and then appointed you, me, to bear fruit. Now, the fact remains that if we're concerned about bearing fruit for our Savior, then... Are we going to be going around, Lord, I would really love a new car right now. That, uh, that new Beamer, whatever the latest model's coming out, I want that one. You can make it happen, can't you, God? Are we going to be concerned with that? Or are we going to be concerned with, Lord, please open this person's eyes? I have been, um, I've been dealing, no, I shouldn't say dealing, kind of uh, talking, chatting, rebutting, and it was getting where my sarcasm was starting to come out. So I decided, well, this is stupid. This is gaining nothing. As a matter of fact, Lord, I'm probably doing something I should not be doing that doesn't glorify you right now. And it was a gentleman that I've talked about. His name's John Loftus, who considers himself an ex-Christian. I've tried to tell him, I said, John, you're not an ex-Christian. You were never one to begin with, and I can prove it to you. He's admitted it by his own admission. I can prove it to him by just simply using his words. He didn't know what being guided by the Holy Spirit. He never had any, never felt that, never had any unction there, never, never was this or that, and a few other things. But he will never admit that he wasn't a Christian because he likes to carry that badge. I was an, yeah, I was an ex-Christian. I'm an ex-Christian. I used to be a Christian but I woke up to the reality. So he and I have talked back and forth, and then I finally realized something yesterday. I could talk to him until I am blue in the face, out of air, and whatever. And I finally just said, you know, Lord, would you please open this man's eyes to the truth and then have him embrace it? What a ministry he would have because there are so many people who follow him. And yet, Father, you, you would be glorified because of that. You would be glorified. God chose us to be his people, to bless us with heavenly riches. But the heavenly riches aren't ours just to sit there and gloat. They're ours so that Christ can work in and through us. He chose us for a purpose. And the purpose is twofold. The purpose, we know this, he chose us to be holy. And what does that mean? Set apart, right? Can I make myself holy? No, I really can't make myself holy. Now, I can do what the Pharisees did. 
I can make myself look holy. I can make you feel like I'm holy and you're not. But the reality is I cannot make myself holy. God chooses us. God appoints us. God sets us apart. God sets us apart. Can I make myself holy? No. But then Paul says, be holy even as I am holy, says God. What does that mean? It means we better follow the Lord's direction to do what we need to do to be holy like he wants us to be. Then it says to be blameless. Blameless. Pastor talked about that this morning. Blameless is not sinless. Blameless is no one can bring a charge against you. You know what's fascinating? And you know this as well as I do. We will never be condemned, right? Romans 8.1. We'll never be condemned. The end of Romans 8 will never be separated. Who can bring a charge against the elect? Satan tries all the time. There is not a day goes by that I don't sin, that you don't sin. Whether we realize it or not, whether we can remember it or not, it was an errant thought, a misspoken word. The big ones we remember. But the little ones, I mean, they just kind of sneak by. And how could God remain in fellowship with us? Because of the blood of Christ and the fact that we're covered by it. And because he's righteous and his righteousness has been imputed. So we need to remain blameless. We need to give no ground to the enemy. And we need to make sure that any charge he brings against us won't stick. So he chose us in verse 4. And then in verse 5, let's look at that. He predestined us in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intentions of his will. This is fascinating to me when I really started thinking about this. To be adopted by God. In Roman times, when a son was adopted, he was already a son of the family. He was already there. But he had to be officially adopted at one point by the father. And do you know why? Because without being officially adopted, that son could never inherit anything. Never inherit anything. Never. This is why sometimes the men who didn't have any heirs, they'd, they'd walk around, they'd try and find somebody, somebody suitable that they would feel comfortable adopting so that they can leave their inheritance to, so that they would know where it's going before they died. God has made us his children. He's made us his children. John 1, 2, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Let me read this. It's a bit long, but it's well worth it. Now I say that the heir, and of course this again is Paul talking, and which is really great about Paul because so many things he tends to repeat through a number of the different letters, saying it one way and then saying it another way. And in Galatians 4, 1 through 7, he says, now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave. Though he is master of all, but he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
you and me, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You know, it's funny because what's interesting about this is, think about this for a minute. We are an heir. We are an heir through Christ. And we're also joint heirs, correct? We're joint heirs, right? What does that mean? It means what Christ has, we have. Who Christ is, except for his deity, we are. We are joint heirs with Christ. Christ is our older brother, still our master, He's our older brother. We still serve him. But we're more than that. We're more than that. We're also accepted. We become his children through acceptance. We're literally accepted. I was reading um, not long ago or saw it on the internet or something. A family in the United States adopted a son from Russia. And so the son came over here, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, you're too much to handle. They sent him back. He was adopted legally. He was not accepted. He was adopted, but not accepted. We are adopted and accepted. God does not look at us and go, all right, for the sake of my son, yeah, come on in. You're part of the family, whatever. God embraces us like he embraces Jesus Christ. And you know what? If we allow these things that I've already mentioned, the fact that he chose us, the fact that he adopted us, the fact that he accepts us, it's when we allow these things to sink in, it becomes part of us. It opens up our understanding of our relationship with God. It's not just... I better not sin, it's, Lord, I want to serve you. And if I'm focused on serving him, can I be focused on how bad I am? How rotten I think I am? I'm not saying again that sin should ever be taken lightly. I'm just saying you can't do both. You cannot do both. So our, our Heavenly Father accepts us. There's another Roman custom, by the way, during the Roman times. Every newborn baby was brought to the Father. Everyone. Set before the Father. Here he is, Father. If the Father picked up the baby, the baby was actually accepted into the family. If that father looked at the baby and then turned his back on the baby the baby was left to die. That's amazing. I don't know how you do that. How do you do that? You look at your own child and you decide, "Mm, no, not going to keep this one. How does that work? It works when you're so enveloped in self and so corrupted by the sin nature. Our Heavenly Father accepts his children. He doesn't just adopt us. He accepts us. 
Everyone who recognizes their need for salvation through Jesus Christ as Savior is not only adopted, but accepted. And we would do well to focus on that, to allow and pray, Lord God, reveal, what does that mean? Help me understand that. I mean, I know it intellectually, but what does that mean? What does that mean? Can you imagine a child who was in a foster home, and then one day is adopted by a very wealthy family. And can you imagine the child being in that household and living as if he was still parentless, homeless, without anybody? It might happen originally, but hopefully he'd get over that and then come to understand and love and appreciate his newly adopted family and then live what? Accordingly right? Isn't that what we're trying to do? Isn't that what we want to do? We want to live in accordance with our adopted position. He makes his children holy and blameless through his spirit. I was reading a commentary on Ephesians this week by a gentleman named Stuart Oliot, Swedish um, theologian. It's a very thin book, but it was fascinating to read. And he talks about the fact that The Holy Spirit works in our lives whether we like it or not, whether we want him to or not, whether we notice him or not. He is always doing two things. He is either convicting us of our sin or convicting us of our righteousness. And when I say convicting in that sense, I'm talking about the fact that he is making us aware of it. So either we're brought to be reminded of our sin, but by the way, not so that I can perform Harry Carey on myself because, oh man, I sinned again, oh, I'm terrible, blah, blah, blah. No, oh, we recognize it, we turn to God in sincere confession, agreeing with him, you know, Lord, you are absolutely right, as usual. I was an idiot there. You're right. I sinned. And what does John say? If we confess our sin to him, he is what? Faithful and what? Just and will do what? Uh Uh-huh. Now, you know what's fascinating? When was our sin forgiven? How many years ago was that? Wait, I wasn't even around then. Neither were you. Unless you're hiding something on us. But 2,000 years ago, was anybody here? But when we become Christians, we were baptized into his body and we were crucified with him and then died with him and then rose again with him 2,000 years ago. And we'll get into that a little bit more just in just a second. But we have riches. We have riches. Riches from our father. He chose us. He predestined us. We become adopted. We become accepted. And then also we have riches through Jesus Christ in verses 7 through 12. Verse 7 In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He has redeemed us. And whenever somebody is redeemed, we have to ask ourselves, from what to what? And we know the answer. We have been redeemed from death to life. How often do we say that? Yep, I got eternal life. Cool. I'm excited. So nice. You know, without God? But do we really understand that? I don't think I do. 
Do we really understand that? How easy does that just come off our lips? Yeah, Christ saved me from death and now I have eternal life. We've also been redeemed from the law of sin and death. And if you're in my class on Romans on Wednesday, you know this. We've been redeemed from the law of sin and death to the law of the spirit of life. And notice in verse 7, actually in, uh, in Romans, Paul talks about being redeemed from the law of sin and death. He does not say you've been redeemed from sin and death. He never says that. He says you've been redeemed from the law of sin and death, which means... Because I've been redeemed from that and redeemed to the law of the spirit of life, what it means is I have the ability, not in me, not in myself, but I have the ability when I submit myself to God to overcome the temptations that come my way. Can you imagine if he gave us the ability to do that? Here, here, okay, here you go. You have the ability now. We wouldn't need God. We would not need God. We would not need to submit to God. We would not need to be constantly aware of our need for him. He does not give us the ability. He gives us the ability in him to overcome sin. So he's redeemed us. He's also forgiven us. Verse 7. What do you mean he's forgiven us? You know, you and I know this. We say it. Oh, all my sins, past, present, and future. Well, if that's the truth, then why do we constantly condemn ourselves for sins that we just committed? Why am I condemning myself when God says through Paul, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. If I'm in Jesus Christ and he's not going to condemn me, why am I condemning myself? And I need to be clear. I want, I do not want to be misunderstood. Never Ever, ever are we to take sin lightly? Never. But if God is not going to condemn me, is he happy when I sit there and I castigate myself or like Martin Luther did later on? How is that pleasing to God? It isn't pleasing to God. As a matter of fact, when we do that, what are we actually doing? We're questioning the legitimacy of his word. We're questioning the veracity of his promises. Again, I know, we like to, it's, it's so difficult for us to say, to not take sin seriously and to not, to not want to show people that we don't take sin seriously. But let me give you an example. And not all sin is alike, we know that. We know that not all sin is alike to the degree, to the consequence We know that. Our laws of the land recognize that. You get a parking ticket. The consequences are not the same as if you uh, rob a bank. It's sin. It's different. We understand that. Okay, so I'm at home and I do something stupid. Say something stupid to my lovely wife. It's been known to happen. So rare. But anyway... (sighs) But see, God gave me the woman who he knew I needed because she can handle the fact that I'm not perfect. She rolls with it. So if I do something stupid, say something stupid to her, and I go, moron, why'd you do that? Because that's the way I am. What are you going to do about it? Honey, you know what? I am really sorry. 
I don't know where that crazy man just came from. He's gone now. I'm really sorry. Does my wife sit there and go, I'm waiting. For what? Well, I'm waiting. Oh, sorry. Will you forgive me? She's already forgiven me. She's already forgiven me. The trouble is sometimes it's hard for me to forgive myself. It's hard for me to forgive myself. But I'm very, very grateful that she is who she is. And you know what? When someone wrongs us, do we expect them to come to us and go, Fred, I am so sorry. I can't even look at you right now. I'm terrible. I'm just disgusting. Beat me. (laughs) Will you forgive me? Do we really expect that? Do we expect our children... Do we expect our children to um, fear us that at any moment I may bring it down on David or Rachel? To show them how much I am in displeasure because of the way they have done what they've done. Can you imagine that? We don't raise our children for that, do we? I love what Christ says. You, being evil, know how to give good gifts. How much more does the Heavenly Father? We don't even do this to our children, and yet sometimes we think that we have to show God. God, I am disgusting. I'm terrible. I mean, if I was buried in manure right now, it still wouldn't be, you know. What God wants is an honest appraisal, a sincere confession his forgiveness, what does it mean when it says, if we're faithful and just to confess our sins, he'll forgive us? What it means is the forgiveness he has for us already is applied. And then he wants us to keep moving. Some people call it rebounding. He wants us to keep moving. And again, please do not misunderstand. I never, ever want anyone to think that I'm saying, Sin, ah, don't worry about it, it's all taken care of, just move on with your life. Uh Uh-uh. Because you don't do that with people you love. You don't. If you wrong someone, you sit there and you go, I am so sorry. And they go, you know what, don't worry about it. And you go, wow, thank you so much, I appreciate that. And then you move on. Do you come back a week later and go, you know, I'm still thinking about last week, what I did, that was so stupid. Do they turn and go, well, good, because you should be thinking about it, because even though I forgave you, you were an idiot. And I'm glad you brought it up today, because if you hadn't, I would have. Is that what happens? Loving people do not do this, right? We know how to forgive, and we know how to forget, because forgetting is part of actually forgiving. So if that's the way we are to one another, how much more is God? Because he looks inside, and he can tell. He can tell if I'm being sincere. He does not need me to put on a show for him. He doesn't need me. He has forgiven us. Satan would love us to believe that we've got to jump through a million hoops. We have to feel bad. We have to slit our wrists or be willing to. And we have to be willing to castigate and condemn ourselves. This isn't the Old Testament. God loves us. The way he views Jesus Christ, except for the deity is the way he views us. 
That's the way he views us. He redeems us. He has forgiven us. And this is awesome. Verse 9. He has made known to us the mystery of his... Mystery, mystery of his will. According to what? His kind intention, which he purposed in him. He has made known to us his will. We are like Eleazar to Abraham. Eleazar was Abraham's top man. And you know what's funny? You don't even learn his name in the chapter in Genesis when it talks about Abraham calling his servant. And what happened? He says, you've got to go and you've got to bring a son back to me. He didn't just say, he, he told Eleazar the hows, the whys, the wherefores, everything he needed to know, plus some. Why? Because he was also Abraham's friend, his confidant, his top man that Abraham knew he could trust. This is the way God views us. And if we're not used to that, we had better get used to it. God views us in Jesus Christ that way. We are still his servant, but we are also his friend. We are also his friend, John 15, 14 through 16. And he makes known to us through here. It doesn't just come out of the sky. Like some people think it does. He makes it known through here. So if we're never reading this, this is God's letter to us. It's a book to us. If we're never reading this, what can God tell us? Not much. We have to read it. We have to read it. In We were talking about India this morning and the persecution that's going on over there. The reality is this. Those people would die for their faith, and I know we would too. God would give us that grace. But those people, their Bibles are taken away. They're burned right in front of them. And how often do we open it? How often do we open it? uh, Number four, verse 12 says, he has made us his praise. What? He has made us his praise. What? Me? His praise? All of us, his praise. Do you know that in eternity future, in eternity future, people, the angels, pardon me, they will praise God because of what he did in and through us. We are his praise. And then in verses 13 through 14, we get riches from the Holy Spirit. He has given us a seal in verse 13. He has sealed us, which to me completely obliterates the argument that says there is no assurance to salvation. You cannot break God's seal. I don't care who you are. You cannot break it, period. Sorry, you can't walk away. I heard one guy go, oh, well, yeah, um, nothing is strong enough to take us out of Jesus' hand, but that doesn't mean we can't walk away. Yes, It does, because you are not strong enough to walk away from him. He won't let you, if you are truly his to begin with. A seal speaks of a number of things. It speaks of a finished transaction. It speaks of ownership. We are owned by him. He owns us. How? He bought us. He owns us. It speaks of security and protection. It speaks of authenticity, and ultimately we belong to God. Here's the the picture that I'm getting as I've been studying this. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. 
Do you hear that? We are in Christ. Where is Christ seated right now? At the right hand of God. Well, is Paul just giving us figurative language? We're in Christ? Yeah, yeah, you're right. No, we're in Christ. If I'm in Christ, there is nothing that can reach me unless it goes through Christ first, which means anything that comes to me is allowed by Christ. That's the reality. Why? Because he owns me. He owns me. I am secure. I'm protected spiritually. That's an authentic seal he has on me and on you. And that is, as Paul tells us in verse 14, a deposit which guarantees what? Our inheritance. The full reality of our salvation will be then known to us. And we're going to look back on this life and go, wow, that was a weird dream. That's the way it's going to seem. Well, in conclusion, eternal and true riches do not come from, and I think we know this, doesn't come from the stock market, doesn't come from collectibles, and I have too many of those. It doesn't come from owning homes, doesn't come from having property, doesn't come from retirement accounts or anything else. And we all know there is no guarantee in any of those things. Nothing. No guarantee. None, especially with the economy the way it is. Do I have to tell you this? Of course not. You know this. You know it better than I do. True riches, which we have in Christ, are eternal. They come from God. And the reason, the reason that God has given us his riches is for the praise of his glory. God's purpose in saving us is so that he may be glorified. We do not deserve the spiritual riches. I know you'd agree with me. No more than Big Mike deserved physical riches that he received when all of a sudden he was adopted into a Southern Christian rich family out of the blue in the movie Blindside. If you saw that, my wife said, you got to watch this. I said, okay, fine. I did. I thought it was going to be a girl flick, but actually it turned out to be pretty good. But here's a guy who didn't deserve what he got. He didn't deserve it, and neither do we. There is no need for us to live in spiritual poverty because God tells us that we're rich in Christ. We need to know what those riches are. We cannot just go through our life focusing on, okay, I should not do this, I can't do this, I better avoid this, I won't do... You know what? I'm convinced of something. The more we know our true riches in Christ, honestly, the more we will just automatically not do this other stuff. Now, maybe that sounds too simplistic, too easy. But I don't think that you can focus on the author and perfecter of our faith. Focus, focus on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. I don't think you could do that and still be sinning and still be doing things that we shouldn't be doing. The writer of Hebrews said, focus, focus. There is no need to live I don't believe there's any need to live an unbalanced, one-sided Christian life where the focus is on how short we fall, how bad we think we are, how sinfully sinful we are. God doesn't look at us like that. He does not look at us like that. He doesn't. We're all sinners. We know that, right? We still fall short. I'll fall short tomorrow. So will you. The reason that God has given us is spiritual riches is so that we can consistently move away from our sinfulness by focusing 
on those riches in Christ and focusing on the giver of those riches for his purpose, for his glory. And by faith, I think we can claim those. I think God wants us to know what they are and he wants to enlarge the meaning and understanding of our spiritual riches. I've only given you seven tonight. There are 33. 33. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our heavenly Father, we know that we don't deserve what we have. But we also know that we can't put our hand to the plow and keep looking back. We know that when we sin, we need to confess and we need to move on. And that confession has to be sincere or it's worth nothing. But we know, Father, that you have given us plenty of spiritual riches. And so we ask that you, through the Holy Spirit, will allow us to understand those, to comprehend those, to enlarge upon our mind what they are. Because I believe, and I think your word bears this out, the more we understand our true position in Christ, the more we become focused on him and the more we become like him. So Father, help us. We all want to be like you. We want to serve you. We want to glorify you in all that we think and all that we do and all that we say. So help us to do that. We pray. We thank you. And we do give you the glory and the honor. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Study, Grow, Know with Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Please join us each week for new broadcasts that deal with theology, prophecy, and political issues from a biblical, conservative perspective. 